0: They encourage us to edify us so that we can live to bring honor and glory to him. Let's pray together. Great God and our loving Heavenly Father, we come into your presence once more to thank you for who you are. You are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the High King of Heaven. We come into your presence with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. We are thankful unto you and we bless your holy name. Great King, Lord of hosts, we come not because we are deserving of your mercy and grace, but because in your own wisdom and kindness, because of your great love wherewith you loved us, Not by works of our own righteousness, but because of your mercy. You chose us, called us unto yourself. You brought us into your presence and united us with our brother, the high king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we are saved by grace and we are adopted into the family of God and we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus and so, Father, as we come into your presence, not only to sing your praises and to read and proclaim your word, we come into your presence to hear from you. And so, Lord, as your instrument to your people, we ask that you would speak through me and that your word would be on my tongue. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. In a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Frank Turek, Christopher Hitchens, many of you know uh, know him as one of the four horsemen as aware of the New Atheist Movement. Uh, Someone from the crowd, someone from the audience asked a question. It was brought through the moderator, and the question was simply this. If God does not exist, what then is the purpose of life? This is a fitting question, obviously, for someone who's an atheist. How do you try to determine what meaning life has? To this, Mr. Hitchens, in his own way, said, I can only answer for myself. He says, the purpose of life is what cheers me up. Later in an interview, as he was diagnosed and facing the threat of death, an interview with NPR when he was diagnosed with cancer, of the esophagus, he was undergoing chemo at this time. In an honest moment, he opened up and said, one of the occasions, uh, he said, on one of my occasionally silly thoughts is that I wish I was suffering in a good cause, a cause larger than myself, or larger than just the mere survival of my person. He said again, if you're in pain and being tortured and you felt it was helping the liberation of humanity, then you can bear it better, I think. I just feel like this is partly random and partly the sort of cancer that gets people like me at about this stage. Christopher Hitchens was a very prolific, outspoken atheist. In his life and up until his death, he remained steadfast in his atheism. He was someone who saw life as something that was about him. And he lived for himself. In life he lived for himself, and in death he shook his hands and fists in the face of Almighty God. Hitchens is an atheist. That's an extreme example. But most people, even Christians, while not consistent atheists, like Mr. Hitchens, find their self-worth in themselves, in personal achievements, in interpersonal relationships, contributions to others in their body image and physical health, to name a few, Subconsciously, they think that life is about the inglorious trinity, me, myself, and I. And when they suffer, they attribute it to just bad luck. But how should the Christian consistently think of himself in relation to those around him or her? And in relationship to God, how should the Christian consistently think about himself in relationship to reality? What we find in Acts chapter 20 is the Apostle Paul's portrait, as it were, an image, a narrative of himself, his exemplar explanation of what it means to be someone who is self-consciously Christian. And so what Paul does in this chapter and in these verses we're going to look at, is paint been a picture for us of a consistent Christian ego, a consistent understanding of who we are, our identity, how we relate to those who are around us, and how we relate to a mighty God. Just by way of context, this is the third and final of Paul's speeches in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 gives us the first of those speeches when Paul spoke to a Jewish audience in Antioch, Pisidian. In his second speech he spoke to the Greeks in Athens at the Areopagus. And this is the third and only speech that he spoke to a Christian audience members of the church in Ephesus. Uh, this speech took place on Paul's third missionary journey as he was coming back. He's made his way from Asia Minor all the way to Turkey, Constantinople, and had gone all the way up to Macedonia, and he had come back down, and he was on his way back to Jerusalem. And instead of stopping in Ephesus, he came a little bit down south, and he landed in Maletus. And he sends word out to the elders and. Ephesus to gather. This was almost um, a presbytery of sorts. All of the elders, uh, the teachers in Ephesus were to come and to have a meeting with with the Apostle Paul. This speech is a speech that is not uncommon in the scripture. It's a legacy speech. Uh, We've seen speeches like it before in Genesis 49 when Jacob spoke to his children as he was passing off the saint. We see this as well in Joshua, Jap- Joshua chapter 23 to 24, as Joshua is passing off the saint as well. We see this in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, as Samuel is passing off the saint, even in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 22, and John chapter 13 and 17 and following, as the Lord is anticipating his, his imminent death on the cross, he calls his disciples aside and he instructs them Gives them anticipation of what to look for. And so it is in the life of the Apostle Paul, this, something similar is happening. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and this is the end, the beginning of the end for, for Paul. And when he calls his friends together, he's, he's calling them to break this news to him. And so normally his speeches like these are divided into sections where there's, an a, there's a call for an assembly to get together, and then there's a reminiscence of, of the past life, and then there's the foreshadowing or speaking to the audience of the fact that death is on the way. And then to encourage them and exhort them to live in expectation of who is passing of the same, so to speak. And so we have a similar setup. We're not going to read all of, and not going to try to preach through all of Acts chapter 17, uh, chapter 20. But we're only going to touch on a few verses, 17 to 25. My main text, my main idea would come from verses 25. And now, Paul says, behold, I know that none of you, sorry, verses 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, Many of you grew up reading the King James. I did. But the beginning of that verse, verses 24, in the King James it says that Paul responded or Paul retorted after he had given examples or after he had explained why he had gotten them together and explained to them. His purpose in life, he had said, but none of these things move me. None of these things move me. So, what we're going to look at as we consider these passages is how does Paul demonstrate to us? How does he paint this portrait of a consistent Christian self identity? How do we think of ourselves? What gives us worth? Is life about me, myself, and I? Or is there a greater purpose to life? What is it? Those of us who have been Christians for any number of time already know that. But do we live it out? Consider first, verses 17. Paul calls the, the elders together. Talks about his past. He says, from Miletus, he sent to, the, to, the, to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set for, foot in Asia. 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, to the plots of my Jews, to, to, to the plots of the Jews. What is Paul doing here in this first section, 8, 17 to 19? First, he's, he's looking back and he's telling his friends, I have been a consistent Christian. I have lived my life to the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you can testify of this in verses 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. When Paul comes to, to Ephesus, he comes, he plants a church, and he stays in Ephesus for a lengthy amount of time. And he's going to tell us that he was consistently living out his Christian faith. When Paul came to to Ephesus to preach as a missionary, Paul didn't come with, with great erudite. He wasn't coming with impressive speech. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that he was someone who, like the Lord Jesus Christ, he wasn't quite someone that people would be pleased to look at. He had an ailment and there was an eye infection and he was probably hunched over and he didn't look like the most pleasant person. To add to that, Paul had had a difficult life. Ever since his conversion, he's preached and everywhere he's went, he's been beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead. But yet, when he comes to his friends in Ephesus, he tells them that when I came and I ministered among you, my life was not about myself. I wasn't having a pity party. I wasn't someone who was trying to impress you with my rhetoric. I wasn't trying to uh, uh, reflect on my background as a Pharisee and trying to impose on you the laws of the Jews. I was someone who was consistent. And how did he demonstrate his consistency as a Christian? He says in verses 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable to you. In another place, Paul would say, I preached the whole counsel of God to you. And so when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, you can only imagine that his ministry was very comprehensive. From Genesis to the writings of his day, all that was considered to be scripture. He had sat with these people, demonstrating to them the good news of Jesus Christ that is woven throughout the Scripture. This is why he could say to them that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And later on he's going to tell them a little bit more in advance or a little bit more in detail what that means. But how did Paul do this? In verses 19 he says, Serving the Lord with all humility and tears. Again, the contrast there is between those who would come puffed up and exalted with credentials attempting to bulldoze their way to the Christians and let for them to let down their conscience and listen because they have this impressive background. But Paul says, no, I came in humility. He reminds the Philippians, this is what humility is. Let this mind be in you which was also in the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. This is what it means to be humble, to become a servant. And Jesus Christ was the perfect example of that. He became a servant even to the point of death. Scripture tells us the death on the cross. And because of his example, the scripture tells us that God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of things in heaven and on the earth and on the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul comes in humility imitating Jesus Christ. And so here his friends can testify to the fact that in his past among them he was a man of humility. He was a man who served And his servants consisted of teaching the whole counsel of God to his friends. When you think about your own life, and if you were to write your own obituary, what would you write? If you were thinking about your own life and you were writing your own obituary right now, or let's say, for example, you had... This same testimony of the Holy Spirit, that that, that death and imprisonment awaits you and your time was coming to an end. And you were to call your family and your friends together and you were to try to to, to reminisce about your past. Could you say this honestly? That I have lived a life faithful to Jesus Christ. And my life has been about service for the kingdom of God. Now not all of us are going to be preachers and teachers and We're not going to have the same calling, but at the end, our lives belongs to Christ. And what Christ calls us to is to a life of humility and service. And so we serve him in all things, whatever our calling. We live the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Paul secondly speaks of his present condition. Verses 20, and verse, verses 20 and 22. In verses 20 he says, I shrink, I did not shrink from declaring to you, to, to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. 21, testifying both to Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and now... Now I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, imprisonment and affliction awaits me. I've been faithful. but I'm going to die. I'm not just going to die, but the rest of my time away from you, I will be met with imprisonment, I'll be met with chains, and I'll be suffering. Imagine getting a diagnosis. You have cancer, like Hitchens had. Prognosis is maybe three months or so. You're going to go through chemotherapy and you're going to die anyway. The suffering and the pain, as that starts to sit with you, how would you handle that? How would you handle that? Here here is someone who has, up until this point in their lives, since their conversion, have suffered. But in the midst of his suffering, he's consistently lived out the truth. Now he's been constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem and, 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 and more suffering is waiting for him there. Don't you think that Paul should take a break? Take, take some time off, right? Find somewhere and, and, and just lay low for a while because this is, it's going to get intense. Isn't that what most people would try to do? The Spirit testified to me that if I leave this place, if I leave Miletus and, and head back to Jerusalem... I'm going to be in prison. I'm going to be put in chain. I'm going to suffer. And, but yet, I'm still going because that's, that's, that's where God wants me. That's the ministry that God has called me to. And yes, I'm going to undergo suffering, but, but still. Do you think that what Paul is saying here is almost contradictory to what we generally believe? That if you just do the right thing and live properly and all of a sudden your life will just be good and things will be fine and you prosper. This is not Paul's experience. Ever since he became a Christian, he's just been suffering. He hasn't had any relief. As a matter of fact, when he had a thorn in the flesh, he sought the Lord three times. And and the scripture says, the Lord said, "My, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to heal you, Paul, but I'll be with you. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Fiery Furnace, God is with him in the midst of his trial and afflictions. But how does Paul think of himself? In another place, he says, For me to live is what? It's Christ. And to die is gain. In Romans, he says these light and momentary affliction, he calls all of his trials and and suffering, light and momentary affliction that is going to bring about a great weight of glory in the age to come. Do you, as a believer, think and expect That just because you live according to the will of God, you do the right things, come to church, you pray, do you expect and hope that trials and temptations will not come? The truth is, trials and temptations will come. Can you say like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ? That I can do all things through Christ? That the trials of this life are but light and momentary afflictions? Can you, like Paul says, in verses 24 in the words of the King James, none of these things move me. None of these things move me. I'm unperturbed. Let come what may. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other grounds, the sinking sand. Can we say that in our souls as we sit here? If we can't, We need to rethink who our sovereign God is and what our relationship is to him. What is our sense of ourselves? So often when we're thrust in the midst of circumstances, when trials are coming and we can see them, as we're going from one trial to the next and we're suffering and we're reeling and we're getting into another one, the question often we ask is, why me? Why me? Am I ever going to get a breather? Why do I keep suffering? But you know, Scripture says that all things work together for good. Do we believe that? That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose? That even our hardship and our suffering even as Paul's experience is also working for a greater weight of glory? Do we believe that our sovereign God who holds tomorrow holds our hands? The God who's looking down to the corridors of time and space, who sees the end from the beginning, who the scripture calls Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, can we trust ourselves into his hand? Can we say like the Apostle Paul, I'm Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live in the flesh by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can we say, like the Apostle Paul, none of these things move me, and I do not account my life as of any value? Do we think highly of ourselves? Do we think God owes us something? Often I do, if I have to be honest. When life isn't going my way, I always say, I don't deserve this. I know sometimes it can be tried and cliche when somebody, when you ask somebody, how are you doing they say better than I deserve, even though you know they're experiencing hardship. It's tried and somewhat cliche, but it's true. Every day we wake up and we get to live for the Lord, we're doing better than we deserve. How many people never wake up in the morning? They are passing the glory on the deathbed while they sleep. We're here. We're in the land of the living. We've been given another chance. What do we think of our own lives? Are our lives for us to eat and drink and be merry? What do we think of ourselves? We live in a culture that is so wrapped up in this whole thing about self-control, not self-control, but self-image or self-esteem. And everybody is just always pining and Moseying about living to boost their self-image. Everybody wants to feel good and wants the things to always be right. Because if they doesn't feel good and they're always experiencing hardship and trials, it it, it lowers their self-esteem. What is our self-esteem rooted in? Where is our self-esteem? Where do we find our self-identity? Paul is saying, I don't have esteem in myself. And my life is not about my self-image. I don't find my hope in the fact that I'm in good health, that I have prosperity, or I have great learning. He says, I do not account my life as any value. I think my life is, I don't have any weight as an individual, my life is worth nothing to me. Now, my Paul is not, not going down the rabbit hole of saying, like, Eeyore, war is me, you know, I'm, I'm just dumb and things are just bad, da 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 da. Paul is not going there. Paul is putting himself in a position where he's contrasting the reality of those who are without Christ and those who are in Christ. Those who are without Christ, like the atheist, live for himself and what would bring him pleasure. He thinks highly of himself, and so he always wants what's best for himself. But the Christian knows that he is crucified with Christ. In the life he lives, he lives for the glory of Christ. It's not about him anymore. but what would bring honor and glory to Christ? If what would bring honor and glory to Christ would require me to serve and to humiliate myself or to be humbled and to even endure suffering and pain, Paul says, that's fine. And why could Paul say this and why should we be able to say, I can do all things through Christ or nothing in life moves me because my life It's not something that I think is valuable to me. Why should we be able to say this and why can Paul say this? Because of who Christ is. What did Christ do for us? When Christ was on his way to Jerusalem to face his death, the scripture said he set his face as a flint. When he knew his death was coming and he was praying and his tears were pouring out as great drops of blood, he cried out, not my will, but thy be done. He wasn't living for himself. The scripture says he lived for the joy that was set before him and he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Paul is not doing anything that the scripture have not already set an example of, which we find in our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing, for me he lived For me he died, an everlasting life, and light he freely gives. He lived for us, and he died for us. And what does he ask and require of us? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so Paul can say, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Why? He says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, in another place, says, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul used the analogy of an athlete who has started in on the race, and he's running, And even though he's experiencing hardship, he says, I'm going to finish because I have my eyes set on the finish line. And I'm not going to be perturbed. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to keep my eyes on the finish line. I'm going to keep running until the race is over. For Paul, the race that was set before him was to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He said, I he said he had done the same thing while he was in Ephesus. In verses 21, he says, testifying of both Jew and Greek repentance towards God and faith in our Lord, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. His message was turn away from your sin and, and turn to God. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. I hope that all of us who have come this morning because of Paul's faithfulness have turned from sin and turned to God and we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who's the author and finisher of our faith if you're here this morning and you're without Christ Paul, through the scripture calls God, through his word calls to you I, on behalf of God, beseech you to be reconciled to God And as Paul continued to encourage his friend, he says, my mission of preaching repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ is not yet over. And even though I'm going to be delivered up in Jerusalem, chains and imprisonments, just me there, I still, have a, I still have a mission to finish. The finish line is still ahead of me. I'm not done yet. I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to finish the race that Jesus has set out for me. It began in 1967 when she was 17 and athletic. One summer morning she went swimming in the, day, uh, swimming in the bay with her sisters. She took a reckless dive into a shallow water and knew... From that moment, her life had changed forever. A doctor told her, Joni, you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life without the use of your hands and your legs. A tragedy. Many of us have heard the story of Joni. She said, I discovered there's a world of other... Or later on, God put Christian friends sorry. She said, I knew I couldn't end my life physically, so I was tempted to end my life emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. I went to bed, told my mother to turn off the lights and shut the door. In the dark behind the closed doors, I cried out, God, if I can't die, then show me to live. And many of us know that the story of Joni and Friends, which started some 40 years ago. This quadriplegic woman, who would never be able to use her arms and her legs again, had given her life to Christ. Christ met with her. And in all words, gave her a mission to reach out to those who were disabled, both physically and emotionally. And so for the past 40 years, she spent her life, giving and giving and giving, preaching, teaching, not preaching, but teaching to ministry, to her words and to her deeds. repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. She couldn't have made the same choice as Christopher Hitchens. She could have made the same choice as Christopher Hitchens or many others who go on living thinking that life is about me and what I want, but instead she embraced the Christian ego. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Here's someone who could have given up on life. Here's someone who, as far as her physical estate would never recover. And instead of choosing suicide or instead of denying the goodness of God, denying the sovereignty of God, seeing the good that God could work through her circumstances, submitted to the will of God, took on the work that God had given to her, and for 40 years have been faithful in her calling to live out the gospel in words and deed, like the Apostle Paul. She too could say, none of these things move me. Suffering, it's okay. I'm doing it because I have a purpose in life. I have a goal that God has given me. Pain, it's fine. I have a good shepherd, the healer, the one who provides the bomb in Gilead. If he chooses to, he can heal me. But in spite of the pain and in spite of the suffering, I'll continue moving on because I have a race that is set before me. Can we say the same? These are hard things to think about. You know, none of us have been faithful. I I haven't. But I'm a messenger. (laughs) I'm not living this out perfectly, and I, I hope to. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will give me the grace that I need. And I hope that he gives you the grace that you need to live the life that he's called you to live. To be consistently living out a life that says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the privilege we have to come into your presence, to seek your face, to hear from you. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit you teach us. And Lord, we're not a perfect people. If we think about our own lives and the consistency that you require of us, we, in many ways, have failed. But Lord, just because we fail doesn't mean we can't start over and and keep our eyes focused on the prize that is set before us. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will empower us, that we too would keep our eyes on the prize that is set before us, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus Christ. We might not have the same goal as Paul to preach repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, but all of us have been called to faithfully live out our Christian life, to be witnesses of the things that we have believed, the things that we've been assured of, of our faith in Christ Jesus, to live for the glory and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll help us, give us the grace that we need to do that. And we pray that you'll be honored in helping and giving us the faith and grace to live to bring glory to you. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.